So what we're going to do is we're going to begin by reading from Acts 7, verses 1 through 8. Stephen said this, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go out into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So that's Acts 7, verses 1 through 8. Now notice here we have Stephen recounting history, the history of Israel. And what always interests me is that was preaching. In those days, if you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, it's recounting what God had done in the past. Try to give a sermon like that in modern-day evangelicalism, you'd be thrown out. Why? Because evangelicalism isn't concerned about the promises of God. It's about tell me how to have a better life here and now, right? Now, what I want to do is look at this passage, and we're going to go verse by verse through it, But Bob made a great point. He said, you know, there's other passages in the Bible where the biblical writers will recount the history of Israel. And I wanted to just take a look at that in Psalm 78. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 78. And this is an example of where else the biblical writers would show the recounting of Israel's history. Now, does anybody have theirs open? Realize as we look at Psalm 78, it's very long. So what I'm going to do is turn our attention to a limited section within it. But just realize there's a lot of Israel's history within Psalm 78. Turn your attention particularly to Psalm 58, excuse me, Psalm 78, verse 58 through 62. Because it's going to be relevant for our discussions in the book of Acts. So here again, the writer of the Psalms is recording Israel's history. And he's going to be talking about how they were in the promised land at this point. In verse 58, and yet they rebelled against God. They built the high places, they built Baal, they built Asherah, and instead of serving Yahweh, they went into idolatry. And so God was going to judge them. And what we do then is, let's just read it here, verse 58 through 62. It says, For they provoked him, that's of course God, with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. When God heard, he was filled with wrath, and greatly abhorred Israel. Now, verse 60 says, So that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men. Now, let's stop there. Where's Shiloh? Well, Shiloh is 10 miles north of Bethel, and at the time, it's the religious center of Israel. Now, if you recall, if you read 1 Samuel 4, who was the priest there at the time in Israel? It was Eli. Well, Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Neither of them were godly. In fact, they led the people into idolatry. They were committing idolatry themselves. And so so here you have the priest of Israel 
who's committing idolatry. And so God has absolutely had enough. And so he's going to hand them over to the Philistines. So that's what God is saying when he removed his tent from Shiloh. The capital, the religious center at that time of Israel is going to be removed by God because of judgment on their idolatry. He says, again, we're in verse 60, the tent which he had pitched among men, and he says he gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He also delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Now, notice it says that he gets rid of his inheritance. It says he he delivered, he got rid of his strength into captivity. Who's Yahweh's inheritance? It's Israel, isn't it? So we're going to, Bob and I are going to keep coming back to this passage in Deuteronomy 32. Now, we haven't introduced it yet, but in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9, we know that God had given all of the nations, right after the Tower of Babel, he dispensed them and gave them to the Stoichia, the demonic realm. But he took one nation that was going to belong to himself, and that's Israel. Well, now Israel wants to be back under the demonic realm. And so he says, you want to be under the demonic realm, go for it. Well, that's exactly what Stephen is going to say here in Acts 7. You see, in Stephen's day in the New Testament, there was one nation who still had the promises of God that was Israel. And yet when Jesus, the fulfillment of those promises come on the scene, they don't want it. They're the inheritors of the promise, and yet they don't want it. By faith, they won't come to Christ. And so what Stephen is going to say is, you're no better. You're no better. You're going to be under the demonic realm as well. So Israel keeps doing this in history, and it hasn't stopped even in Stephen's day. Does everyone see that? Okay. So good catch, Bob, on that Psalm 78. I thought that was excellent. Now, let's read here then Acts 7, 1 through 3. You're going to see Stephen recount the Israel, excuse me, the history of Israel as well. Stephen's talking here, it says, and, or I'm sorry, the, it, Luke here is narrating the fact that the high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Okay, now, stop there. The hear me is an imperative. This is a command by God. Listen to the significance of it. Stephen is the one who is endowed by God here to speak. He's filled with the Spirit. God's glory was upon him. And it says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Okay, now we've already looked at Psalm 78, but notice this term appeared. The term appeared is very significant because here Yahweh is appearing to Abraham. That term appeared, hara'o, gives an indication that it wasn't just a vision But there was something more than a vision. That is, there was a tangible presence of God himself that God embodied met with Abraham. And I want to show you an example of that. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 12, 7. This is what Stephen is quoting from. Again, turn your Bibles to Genesis 12, 7. Now, what's very interesting is in Genesis 12, 3, remember there was blessings and curses that God said would come upon anyone who either blessed Israel or cursed Israel? Well, right after that, Israel, or I should say Abraham, he goes to Shechem. Now, later in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, this is the place where there's blessings and curses upon Israel. So blessings and curses will come upon you whether or not you 
either abide what God is doing through Israel or if you go against what he's doing in Israel. So in other words, if you're with God's plan, if you'll trust him by faith, if you're grafted into the promises of Israel, you're blessed. But if you won't, if you'll disbelieve, if you'll have nothing to do with Israel, if you curse them, you're going to be cursed. Because there's one nation that belongs to God. All the other nations belong to whom? The demonic realm. So God is taking a new humanity. After Babel, all the nations are given to the demonic host. He's going to take one man, Abraham, and he's going to make a new nation. And from that nation, the Messiah is going to come. So what God does is he gives an interview. He interviews Abraham. He comes to him tangibly. is isn't some mystical voice. He comes to him tangibly. He speaks to him, just as if Jesus came into the room here. It says in Genesis 12, 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now notice the term appeared. It's the same term that we see here in Acts 7, the identical term. So here you have the tangibility of God communicating to his spokesman now, Abraham. All right, so... We know from that then what? That when God gives revelation, he doesn't give it mystically to his spokespeople. He gives it how? Tangibly. Now, are you and I to have a tangible experience, expect that God is going to come into our room? No. We're not going to expect that. But we know that God spoke tangibly to the patriarchs, didn't he? Okay. Now, we'll keep moving on here. Notice here, Stephen is also respectful. Oh, by the way, I want to give some verses out because I want you to see where this idea of harao appeared is seen elsewhere in the book of Luke. Luke Acts, again, is a one-volume set. Can someone read Luke 9.36? Anybody mind doing that? Milford, would you mind reading that? Sure, and I think Brian's got the microphone for you. Handy that way. (laughs) Okay. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Yeah, so here's the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus was shown to them, remember, in his majesty. They had this experience tangibly with God. He spoke with a voice. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased to listen to him. So again, when God has contact with his people, you see this term appeared. Turn earlier in Luke 1, if you won't mind, Milford. Uh, Luke 1, 11 and 22. We'll see the same term, harao, used. And in this case, it's with Zacharias. He's going to have an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord appear to him. This is Luke 1.11. Okay. And again, the term appeared as harao, the same term that was used in Genesis 12.7 for God appearing to Abraham, the same one that Acts 7 here is recounting through Stephen. Okay. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you said 22? Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, are you in Luke 1.11? Oh, sorry. That's, sorry. No, that's Okay. <laughs> All scripture is good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there you go. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the the right side of the altar of 
of incense. Yeah, amen. So notice it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. So again, when Zacharias is given his message, it's not some mystical voice in his head, but rather an angel of the Lord appeared to him. God appeared to Abraham. It wasn't some mystical voice. So we know God's revelation was objective, wasn't it? Uh, notice in Luke one twenty-two, Milford, I'll read it as you follow along. Oh, okay. Luke one twenty-two, or do you have it? Maybe you already have it. Oh, I yeah, Luke one twenty-two. But, but when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Yeah, so that vision again is related to this concept, hara'o, that again there was this appearance tangibly, objectively to Zacharias. Now, what's very interesting is Bob puts in his notes, I think this is fascinating, in Genesis 11, consider this, all of the nations were commanded earlier by God to disperse, to be fruitful and to multiply, but they don't do that. They come together to build their way to God through this ziggurat, this tower built on the vanity of man to try to reach God. Well, it says in Genesis 11:5 that the Lord came down to see, hara'o. And so the idea is that he sees what humanity is doing, and what's he going to do? Well, he's going to disperse all of the nations and give them all over to the demonic realm. That's what Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9 is saying. So then he's going to choose one nation, which is Israel. And so he chooses one man, Abraham. And what does he do? He appears to him. So now Abraham has an interview. Abraham is objectively given revelation from God. And so the people of God now have God speaking to them. And so that's the tradition that you and I stand in, that God speaks objectively, not mystically. All right? You know, I was thinking about 2 Corinthians 5, 7 as I was reading this. Paul says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Okay, so notice Abraham saw by sight, and yes, he believed, but God came to him. And in the same way, our apostles and prophets are given objective revelation they were the ones who were with Christ, the apostles. They were with him for three years, right? But do you and I have objective visions or experiences like that? No. So what we're believing is on what the spokesman said. But God did tangibly come to them and give them objective revelation. The reason this is important is you're going to go out into a world where even Christians, so-called Christians, will say, well, you know, God was saying to me the other day. And they say it so flippantly, you'd think that they're talking to their best friend. Oh, yeah, Jim was going to go down to the hamburger joint. Well, then Yahweh came by, and he told me I should do this. <laughs> the Lord was speaking to me. But what we're saying when we look at these passages is that the word of Yahweh really did come because Yahweh himself gave objective revelation. And so our scriptures are built on this objective revelation. You and I aren't given then these experiences mystically, but we trust upon the scriptures that were built on the objective revelation given to the prophets of the Old Testament, whether it be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whether it be Isaiah, Jeremiah, or the apostles and prophets in the New Testament, the apostle Paul, Matthew, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay? Now, yeah, Eric, you got something. I just have a question. Sure. I, I don't know if I've got this right, but somewhere along the way, you know, over the years, I... I think that I've been taught or something. I can't quote this from the Bible, but that, you know, that what you're describing, this is why Jesus loves his church. 
Yeah. He loves us because, you know, we, we haven't had God come tangibly to us, and yet we believe. Amen. Although that we haven't seen, we still believe. Amen. Exactly right. Yes, that's right. No, well said. Yeah, and that was stated, you're right, in John t- uh, twenty twenty eight, when he says, My Lord, my God. And he says, Yes, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And you're absolutely right. So, yeah, thank you, Mike. That's right. John, I think that's 2028. Um, by the way, I remember that because the Jehovah Witnesses, when you bring up, when, remember Thomas says, My Lord, my God? Yeah. And that's obvious evidence that Jesus is Lord, that he's God, right? Well, the Jehovah Witnesses tried to get around that by saying Thomas was just surprised. He said, my Lord, my God. <laughs> That's, yeah, exactly, which is, I think, wishful thinking. So anyway, just to let you know. All right. So again, Revelation is objective. It's given tangibly. Abraham didn't have some mystical experience. God came to him objectively. Okay. Now, whoops, what did I do wrong? Oh, I hit the wrong button. I don't know why it does that for me. There we are. Okay, so let's continue on into verse 4 where we see Israel's roots are in Abraham's life and God's promises. And by the way, the significance of that then is here Stephen's appealing to the audience that's before him, these Jews, and he's appealing to them that, look, these are your promises too. If you'll come to God in his terms, these are your promises. He says, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now, what's the setting here? Well, we see that Abraham obeyed God without question. And I want you to think of the setting. The setting is in Genesis 11. Now, what did we just recall that had happened? Well, in Genesis 10, again, all the nations were at Babel. God disperses all of the nations, right? And then in Genesis 11, you're going to have him call whom? Abraham. And Abraham's going to be a mighty nation. So God, again, is starting over. All of humanity has been a disappointment. They were going to work their way to God. So he's going to start over, and that's what we're going to look at here. What Stephen is recounting are the things that occurred in Genesis chapter 11. Now, before we do that, though, I want to read Deuteronomy 32 with you. And the reason I want to do that is because Deuteronomy 32 gives a synopsis of what God does in Genesis 11. So it's like the cliff notes of Genesis 11, okay? And it's also, by the way, it's Revelation. It explains what happened there. So turn your Bibles first to Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9. We'll read that, and we're going to come back to this as we build kind of a worldview in the weeks to come. So again, Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9. Notice it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. When did he divide mankind? Babel, right, after Babel, right, exactly. So now what does he do? He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, stop there. Some of your versions will say the sons of Israel. The better rendering is the sons of God, and we know that because we have... Not only the Septuagint saying that, but we have copies from Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the copies that were found in 1947, predate other copies of Isaiah in the Masoretic text by a thousand years. Okay? 
And now the reason why I think the sons of God, are that reading is preferred, is it makes sense contextually, much better sense, but it's also the more difficult reading. You see, the reason it was probably glossed over is some scribe thought, wait a minute, the sons of God, these are the demonic beings. And so you can understand why there would be this insertion of the sons of Israel. But you can't understand it the other way around. So I think clearly the sons of God is the best rendering. Now, who are the sons of God? Well, these are demonic beings. We see in Job chapter 1, remember the sons of God used to come, it says, into the... Bob, do you have something? Okay. In Job 1, you have the sons of God that come into the presence of Yahweh. Remember that? And who was among the sons of God? Satan. And he demands the permission then to sift, to sift Job, doesn't he? Okay? So that's what's going on there. Now, let's continue reading. And let me just read again. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So we're getting a sneak peek here of what happened in Genesis 11. So at Genesis 11, God has given all of the other nations over to the demonic realm, but he's going to take a unique people to be his own. That's why he's starting over, so to speak, with Abraham. And so Abraham's now going to be called to be this unique nation. Yeah, Bob. Oh, 419. I know what you're going on. Yeah. Yeah, can somebody read Deuteronomy 419? You'll see the same idea. In fact, uh, Brian, do you have your... Whoever gets to it, you can just hand the mic to. Deuteronomy 419. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Yeah, so here are the stars, the moon, the sun. Oh, I'm sorry. And verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. Well said. Thank you. So notice in verse 19, the command is to Israel not to worship the host of heaven the stars, the sun, and the moon. Now, the stars, the sun, and the moon, yes, they're actual physical objects, celestial beings up there. In other words, they're actual physical objects, but behind them are the demonic realm. You see, the nations are worshiping them because their gods stand behind those objects. And so this is demonic worship. It's worshiping the demonic realm, which has been given to all of the other nations. Remember, he gave, we just read in Deuteronomy 32, he gave all the nations to the demonic realm. So Israel isn't to follow suit, and yet what do they do? They do the same thing. And so what Stephen is getting at in Acts chapter 7 is that the Jews in his day are no better. They're doing the same thing by rejecting Messianic salvation. They are rejecting the very promises of God, and they're subjecting themselves to the demonic realm. They're choosing not to be a unique nation called out by God, but to belong to all the other nations that are given to the demonic realm. That's the point that Stephen is making. Wow. Okay, very good catch. Thank you for the Deuteronomy 4. Okay, now let's look, though. Again, we're looking at background for Genesis 11. Let's read that together. Genesis 11, 31 through 12, 3. And I'll read it. You go ahead and follow along. Genesis 11, 
Genesis 11.31 through Genesis 12.3. God's beginning here with a new nation. It says, Terah took Abram, his son, so that Terah is his father, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sari, his daughter-in-law, his son, of, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Verse 32, it says, The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Genesis 12, 3, he says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, notice here in particular this Genesis 12, 3. God is taking one nation to be his own. All the other nations are go, go, given over to the demonic realm. Well, if you end up blessing Israel, you're going to be blessed because it's the only way of salvation that God has given. But if you curse them, you're going to be cursed. Now, go ahead in Israel's history. Remember when God brings Israel to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal? This is in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. God gives potential blessings and curses there. So what he's saying is if you Israelites are going to act like all of the other nations who are under the demonic host, I'm going to curse you. But if you'll act like the people I've called you to be, if you'll obey my covenant, if you'll trust in me, then you're going to have blessing. So do you see then blessing flows from having faith in the promises of God? If you'll trust that, yes, God is making this new nation, he's creating this new humanity through this coming Messiah, the seed, you're going to have salvation. You're going to be blessed. But if you go against that, you're going to have curses. Again, Stephen's message before the Sanhedrin, he's saying the same thing. He's giving them the same message. Okay? Now, Bob had a great quote here from this Peterson. Listen to what it says. Peterson says this about Acts 7, 4. It says, quote, So he, that's Abraham, left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. Abraham's obedience to God is implied despite the unexplained pause in Haran. God's initiative in the next stage of the journey is then stressed. After the death, this is the next stage, after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living, unquote. Stephen makes a direct connection between God's promise and the situation of his audience. He hooks the council's attention by shifting from the third-person narration about the past to second-person direct address to the present, this land in which you now live. Do you see what Stephen's doing? That's what he's saying to his audience. It's the land that you now live in. He says they are the inheritors of the promise, whereas God gave Abraham no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, as we will see in Acts 7-5, the next verse. Yeah, Tom, hold on, we'll get to... We got the microphone. We're coming. Is there anything else you want to get in there, Bob? Okay. How do the people justify the replacement theology with that in mind? Yeah, you know, it's troubling. Uh, What they would say is that when we get to the new covenant, they would say the church 
is now the new Israel. And evidence that they would suggest for that, for example, would be found in Romans 2, 28 through 29, where Paul says, look, a Jew isn't one who is circumcised outwardly, um, but one who is what? One inwardly. And being a true Jew is one who is circumcised of the heart, not by the external written code. Okay, so the idea that Paul is driving at is, look, a true Jew isn't one just because you're born from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's one who is circumcised in the heart so that they believe. Now, we can accept that to say, yeah, in a sense, not in a sense, it's true. If you don't come to faith in God's promises, you're not a true Jew. You're not an Israelite. You're not part of the covenant promises. We can affirm that. But at the same time, when we get to Romans eleven twenty six, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he certainly is talking about ethnic Israel. So the way that we should conceive it is, on the one hand, yes, it's true. We can look at the church as the Israel of God in certain texts. Um, for example, Peter calls those who are sinners, he calls them Gentiles. Well, why does he call them Gentiles? Because in the Old Covenant, the Gentiles were the sinners and the Jews were not. So that imagery is certainly in the New Testament, but the New Testament routinely proves and shows that all Israel will be saved. Okay, so if you're going to be a partaker in God's promises, you have to believe in Messiah, but the promises are going to come to the land of Israel. The kingdom isn't going to be in Minnesota. It's not going to be in, you know, Kiev, Russia. It's coming to Jerusalem, and it's going to be literally fulfilled. So the way they distort it, Tom, is by just looking at the passages that indicate that a true Jew is one who is a believer in Christ. Well, yes, that's true, but there's somewhat of a metaphor being used there because there is still a promise for ethnic Israel, Romans eleven twenty six. Does that help? Okay. Yeah, good question. Very good. Okay, well, um, anybody have anything else? We'll keep moving then for the sake of time here. Okay, verse 5. So at the time then, he had neither the heir nor the land, but what did Abraham do? He believed. He believed the promises. It says, Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So notice what Bob puts here. He says, These promises were given objectively by God and were believed despite the lack of current proof. So what did Abraham have to do? Here, he's going to be this great nation, And it's all going to come from his son. And yet, what's the problem? He doesn't have a son. So do you see then when Abraham and his wife try to help the situation out with Hagar? That it's, yes, I think it's a little bit of a lack of faith. But you know the old joke? The guy's drowning, right? He prays to the Lord, Lord, please save me. And a boat comes along. And the guy says, no, no, the Lord's going to save me, right? And so, he, and so he lets that go. Well, then all of a sudden, he's just still praying, Lord, please save me. I'm going to drown out here. What's going on? And then the helicopter comes by, right? Well, then he says, no, no, the Lord's going to save me. And the helicopter flies off. Well, then finally, the guy dies, and he ends up in heaven. He says, Lord, what was that all about? I was praying really hard out in the Atlantic, and I didn't see any answer. And God says, you know, what about the, the boat and the helicopter, right? And so I think, in a sense, Abraham has this in mind, that certainly, yes, God is going to bring about this promise, but... After all, my wife is barren. We better help the situation out. Okay? Now, is it, again, a compromise of faith? I think it is. But you can see what he's thinking. I have to do my part. I have to help the situation out. But yet, God was going to bring the promise about unilaterally, miraculously, so that no man can ever boast and say, yeah, I, I helped do this. 
And so Abraham believed and ends up being credited to him as righteousness. So let's turn to see how Abraham believed this. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 15. We'll just look at verses 1 through 6. I want you to look at this promise that was given to him. The promise again stems all the way back in Genesis 12. But now you're going to have a covenant ratified and given by God. Genesis 5, 1 through 6. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? So here's the rub. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Now here's the response. Verse 4, it says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Okay, now, let's just stop there for a moment. We're going to explore the word of the Lord coming to him. I think this, again, is tangible. What is Jesus referred to in John? He's the word made flesh. And so here, there's more than likely we have a second person of the Trinity who is with Abram, giving him this revelation and this promise. It says, Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he will be your heir. And then he took him outside and said, Now think about that. He took him outside. It sounds like there's a meeting here, right? He took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now remember, in the Hebrew, the term descendant there is Zerah. Zerah is what? It's seed. What's the very first promise in Genesis 3.15? The seed, Zerah, of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent on the head. So now here we see the continuation of that seed promise. So shall your seed be. Verse 6, then he believed in Yahweh and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed in the promises to come. You and I believe in the promises that did come. Abraham looked forward to the cross. You and I look back to the cross. Jesus said in John 8, 56, Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day. Remember, he said he saw it from afar and he rejoiced. Okay, so the salvation has always been by faith alone. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of paraphrasing initially, but God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarah, do not call her Sarah, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, she will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed. He said to himself, can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, no. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his future offspring. Wow. And it just goes on, you know, talks about Ishmael's part in it, but it is not in the covenant. Yeah, that's very well said. So, yes, God is going to bring this promise unilaterally about And remember in Genesis 18, God calls them on the carpet for laughing. And remember, what's Isaac's name mean? It means laughter, right? Because they were laughing at his promise. And then they say, oh, no, we weren't laughing. And God says, oh, yes, you were. And then the reply is from Yahweh. He says, is anything too difficult for Yahweh? Now, that question, anything too difficult, it literally in the Hebrew, paleh, is, is anything too miraculous? Is anything too paleh, is anything too miraculous for Yahweh? 
What's so beautiful about that is in Isaiah 9, remember, unto us a son is born, uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name is what? It's Wonderful Counselor. The term is palah. It's the same term. He's a miracle worker. A miracle worker can do the supernatural. You see, that's who Jesus is. There's nothing too difficult for him. Why? Because he's God. And so that's the idea, the connection, I think, between Jesus and Genesis 18. He's the one who brings this about. The second person, the Trinity. Absolutely. And God, you know, all, all members of the Trinity. Yeah, nothing's too difficult. He's a miracle worker. He'll bring it about himself. Yeah, well said. So now we have the fulfillment of this seed. This promise is in the seed. And what that means then is that just because Abraham doesn't take part and live in the land doesn't mean that God isn't fulfilling the promise later through his seed. Is everyone with me? So when God brings the Israelites into the land, that's a fulfillment of the promise, at least partially. Okay, and I want to show you that. Notice here, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we'll see that believing in the promises of God is exactly what Abraham did, and yet he didn't even experience living in the land himself. Notice here in Romans 4.18, it says, In hope against hope, he believed. Now, who's that? It's Abraham. So that he might become the father of many nations according to that which he had spoken, so shall your seed be. Okay, does everyone see the term descendants? That's the term seed. Okay, now let's stop there. Let's talk about that seed real quick. The seed, remember, is both the one and the many. The promise is made possible by the one, the Messiah. That's Zerah. Just like you and I use the term deer. We can shoot one deer or we can hit with our car ten deer, but you, we still use the term deer. It's a collective noun. Well, Zerah is the same thing. And so the idea then is that the one is going to provide salvation for the many. And the many are going to be the partakers. You and I are part of the many, aren't we? And so it's our promise too. So it's not just one or the other. It's both and. It's the one and the many. And that's the promise to the seed. So, so shall your seed be. Now in verse 20, notice he says, Yet with respect to the promises of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21, it says, And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. So here... Abraham really believes that God is going to bring about these promises. He believes that just as God had stated, that his seed is going to be this great nation. Remember the great nation, God starting over. All the other nations are given to whom? The demonic realm. But this new nation is going to come through him. And he believes it. He believes that, yes, God will be faithful to that promise. Verse 22 of Romans 4, it says, Therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul's point then is what? Salvation's always been by faith. It's not that in the old covenant God had one system, you were saved by works, and all of a sudden when you get to the new covenant, now we have a different system. No, salvation's always been the same, by faith in the promises of God. Now, one thing I want to point out, don't think that Abraham's not going to have a partaking in the inheritance to be brought into the land either. He is also going to be a partaker in the future glory that will come to Jerusalem. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11.10. Hebrews 11.10. You're going to see that, yes, Abraham believed by faith that he was going to be a partaker of the new Jerusalem. Now, as you're turning to Hebrews 11.10, 
Let me remind you of something that we learned in Isaiah. In Isaiah, there's two cities at the end of time. There's the city of destruction called the city of chaos. That's Babylon. And you have the strong city, the city of Yahweh, Jerusalem. And so God is going to throw down Babylon and he's going to establish Jerusalem. That's where his abode is going to be forevermore. And we see this culminate then in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, you have coming down prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You have the new Jerusalem. And sure enough, that's exactly what Abraham was trusting in. Hebrews 11.10, it says, For he, this is by faith, Abraham did this. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he is going to be a partaker in the city as well. And that's significant because Abraham lived his whole life as a nomad, always pulling up the pegs of the tent. And yet what it says here is that he was looking forward one day, there's going to be a city that has foundations. In fact, the builder of that foundation is God himself. And so Abraham is going to be a partaker in that one day. So yes, the promises given to Abraham and fulfilled in Abraham are fulfilled through his seed, his offspring, but he's going to experience them too. He's not locked out from it. It's not that, well, you just have posterity and maybe your kids will someday live in this land and that's good enough. No, Abraham knows he's going to live in it too. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 11.10. I think that that looks forward to the resurrection. How is Abraham going to enjoy this city that has foundations if he's not living? Right? He has to live. So I think that that implies there was a belief in the resurrection as well. Listen, this is a great quote that Bob has. I think, Bob, you should write a commentary. It's very good. He says this, bobbed away. He says, quote, Faith has an object, God and his promises. This is a key theme to Stephen's speech. God is keeping his promise, promises and his audience is the recipient of them. Only they are in rebellion and reject God's messengers and thus reject his promise of messianic salvation, unquote. Wow. They're just like the pagans of long ago that rejected the promises of God. They're no different. That's what Stephen's concerned with. Okay, now, in verse 6, we see that the seed, remember the one in the many idea? Well, he's talking about the many, obviously, here. The seed would be enslaved for 400 years. It says, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. Now, again, we have Genesis 15, verses 13 through 14, and I want someone to turn to that and read it, if you would. If we could have someone read Genesis 15, we'll read verses 13 and 14. But before you do that, let me make a comment here. I just put up at the top of the screen, what, you're going to ta- what we're going to see here is that we're talking about the Amorites. Who are the Amorites? The Amorites were descendants of the Nephilim, and they are the ones who are the enemies right here where it says that they will one day be judged. Okay, and they're going to be judged by whom? By God. Okay, so first of all, though, let's read Genesis fifteen thirteen. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. 
Right. So we have Genesis 15, 14. He's going to judge the nation whom they serve. Now, who's that? That's Egypt, right? Now, go to verse 16. Keep reading. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So there's the Amorite. So the reason why God is going to wait 400 years, his people are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. And the reason why is the iniquity of the Amorites has to increase. Remember we talked about this concept of filling up? God will allow iniquity to fill up, and there gets to be a certain point where he can't stand no more, and then he's going to judge it. Well, the Amorites are descendants of the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? Well, they're descendants of the sons of God. And that's the old humanity. Those are the ones who had come together and were trying to usurp God's authority, his power, what he was doing in the world. So what he's going to do is he's going to allow the Amorites and their iniquity to fester for 400 years while he uses Egypt as an incubator. And as Israel is in this incubator, they're going to be protected and they're going to grow in numbers. So that, yes, they're going to be, just as he said to Abraham, they're going to be as number, numerous, numerous as the stars of the sky or the, the sand on the seashore, right? Now, what's very interesting is when Moses, by the power of God, takes Israel out of Egypt after that 400 years, guess who he starts fighting against? Well, according to Deuteronomy 2.34 and 3.6, it's the kings of the Amorites, So now the Amorites are being judged, and the reason why Yahweh wants to wipe them out is they're a bastard race. They are the result of the sons of God going into the daughters of men in Genesis 6. And this is Satan's seed. And so Satan's seed is trying to usurp God's seed. And so you see, that's why God has to wipe them all out. God isn't unloving or somehow unjust when he asks the Israelites to wipe out every one of the inhabitants of Canaan. But what he's doing is he's wiping out Satan's seed. Because the promise isn't coming through Satan's seed. It's going to come from whose? God's seed. From Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, from David. Okay? Yeah. Oh, Bob wants to plug this book, too. This is, a lot of this is written in here, which Michael Heiser does a very good job. Uh, the Unseen Realm. You know, Bob and I would have some issues with some of the things that Michael Heiser says. But this paradigm that he's laying out, where you have the sons of God and this race that needs to be destroyed and a new humanity created through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we would certainly affirm that. And a lot of these things you can read about in Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm. Very good. Yeah. So thank you. Now, notice here it says, again, the offspring. The offspring would be the seed. They're sojourners in a land belonging to others, so they're not going to live there permanently They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Again, why? Because God is going to protect them, but he's allowing the sin of the Amorites to fester and to grow. But he will wipe them out. And by the time that you get to David, the Nephilim and all of their consort are really wiped out at that point. And then God sets up his kingdom where it's in Jerusalem as he defeats the Jebusites. Okay, so the seed would be enslaved for 400 years, But yet God is going to be faithful to his promise. Now Stephen references the temple in verse 7. It says, But I will judge the nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. 
Now, one thing Bob wants to point out here is the temple, he says, is the key focus in Luke-Acts. Okay, so one of the great debating places is in the temple because, you see, the Jews think salvation is found there. And certainly it is found in Scripture that God has decided to place his throne in Jerusalem. But the question that's being debated with Stephen and the Sanhedrin, is salvation really found in the temple? Or is it found in the Messiah? You see, the temple was only to point to Messiah. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 12, 6, he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. So the Jews are saying salvation comes through works in the temple. Jesus and his apostles say, no, the works in the temple pointed to me, the Messiah. And if you don't come to the Messiah, you're missing all of the promises that Stephen has just laid out in the book of Genesis. That's the key issue. So we have Stephen cites then God's fulfilled promises. Stephen blends here Genesis 15 verses 13 through 14 with Exodus 3.12. Now why does he do that? Because he's blending the promise of the promised land, the, the promise of Sinai, and the promise of the temple in Jerusalem. He's blending all of those together. So didn't God promise that he would meet his people in Sinai? He did. Didn't he promise that he would bring them to the promised land, Israel? Yes. Didn't he promise that he would set up a kingdom that would be without end and his throne would be in Jerusalem? Yes. So all of that is tied to this place. And so this place in the book of Acts specifically refers to the temple because God had promised that he would meet his people there. And yet, even when they're there, they miss out on the salvation that God would bring. Now, let's read Acts 6, 13, and 14. Someone can read that for me. Yeah, Mike, that'd be great. Uh, 6, 13, and 14, yep. They also presented false witness witnesses who said this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law for we heard him say that jesus this nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that moses handed down to us yeah so notice the reference to this place this place is certainly referring to the temple now when stephen cites this place he's citing it from exodus three twelve. In Exodus 3.12, where was God going to meet Israel when they come out of Egypt? Well, they're going to meet him in Sinai. Okay, so do you see what, what Stephen's doing? Is he saying, well, yes, in one sense, God meets his people at Sinai, but God also promises that he's going to meet them in Jerusalem. And so the problem is here, God's fulfilling all of the promises he gave, but the audience of Stephen's missing them because they're missing the fulfillment of the promise. They're missing Messiah. If you have no Messiah, what's the difference if you have Jerusalem and a temple? If you have no David who's going to reign over that temple and in that Jerusalem, what's the difference? If God doesn't reign there, what's the difference? That's the point. All right, now, I want to point out one thing. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 68, 15 through 22. I'm going to show you that there's two mountains that are in contrast here. Psalm 68, 15 through 22. There's a mountain in Zion, and then there's a mountain in Bashan. Bashan is Mount Hermon. It's the headquarters of the demonic realm. It's the headquarter of the nation, so to speak. 
But God has chosen to choose, he's chosen Israel, specifically Jerusalem, to be his abode. Psalm 68, 15 through 22. It says, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. Does everyone see that in verse 15? Now, literally, a mountain of God is the mountain of Elohim. You could say a mountain of the gods. It's a mountain of the gods is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Now listen to Bashan again. Where is that Mount Hermon? Mount Hermon is where the demonic realm has their headquarters. It's where the demonic realm demands sacrifices, Asherah, Baal, all of those worship the host of heaven have as their headquarters Bashan. It says, Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely Yahweh will dwell there forever. Now let's stop there. Where has God chosen to dwell forever? Jerusalem. Now, that, this is one of the reasons why I think there's a translation issue. Some wrestle and say it's Sinai. I think that the ultimate abode here that's going to be referred to is actually Jerusalem. Because God never chose to dwell forever in Sinai. Okay, in verse 17 it says, The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Now this is how the NASB renders it. The Lord is among them as at Sinai. Now, why is it as at Sinai? Because he never chose Sinai to dwell there forever. He's making a comparison because David ascended to the throne where? In Jerusalem. He says, in holiness, you have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that Yahweh may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation who is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belongs, I'm sorry, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Hmm, doesn't seem to read right, but surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilt. Now, the point being here is that there's two abodes. It's either the abode of the wicked, Bashan, or the abode of God, which is Jerusalem. And what God is laying out is that he's going to reside where? He's going to reside in Jerusalem. And so he's going to bring his temple then to Jerusalem. And all of these promises come about. But now you have the Sanhedrin, the leadership of Israel, who are there. They're experiencing the very promises that God had given. And yet they rebel again. Just like they did in the wilderness. Just like they've done time and time again. They're in rebellion. Jesus said something greater than the temple is here, but they missed it. That's the problem. They're supposed to worship it in this place. Yeah. How to get out of that in Genesis? Sure. There's a way out now. 1 John 5, 18 and 19. But 19. The whole world's under. Oh, right, right. Very good idea. Yeah, great passage, Bob. Let me, let me be your voice here. Bob says there's a way out from this problem of being in unbelief. He says, we know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So the way out is to coming through the sun. First John 5, 
19 through 20. 18 is significant. Okay. I preach this. I'll explain it all. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Very good, Bob. I'll set that here. It was 1 John 5. We want to read 18 all the way through 21. Yeah. Okay. Now, we we'll, we'll got what time for one more verse. It says, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Bob has in his notes here, he says, Stephen again cites God's fulfilled promises. Previously childless Abraham has heirs who become the patriarchs. Abraham believed and obeyed God. Dear one, circumcision was given as a sign of what God was doing. It wasn't the covenant. It was a sign of the covenant, wasn't it? Circumcision, notice it's on the eighth day. I don't know if we have Brian in here. Brian Zoig mentioned a very interesting point last week that I think you should all hear. He had mentioned that, remember, the creation was fulfilled on the seventh day. Was it not? God rested. He creates everything in six days, rests on the seventh. And Zoig thought, well, you know what? Maybe this idea of circumcision on the eighth day applies to this new creation. I thought, you know what that preaches? God and Abraham and the circumcision, which is going to bring, it's a sign of bringing Messiah through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. What do you have? You have a new creation. You have a new humanity. And so that's what's God, what God is doing. And yet it's for those who believe in Jesus Christ. It's not by coming to the temple. It's not by any works that we do. It's through Christ. And for those who come to Christ, they have a partaking in the promises of God. Those who miss it, they don't. That's what Stephen wants them to know. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the fact that salvation isn't found in any building, that you are faithful to your promises to bring your son about through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. We pray, Lord, one day that you will come for us. We say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust in all of your promises as Abraham did. He looked forward, we look back, but it's one Savior one cross, one salvation. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you, Bob. Hi. How are you?